Bruce, could you put that slide right back up there? The last words to that song are a perfect introduction to our message this morning. You see those words? With confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Go back one more slide. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. What a glorious truth. Especially when we consider the fact that our God is, and I quote, a consuming fire. Consider those words in light of the fact that our God is a consuming fire. But we have nothing to fear. For he has reconciled us as believers to himself so that we can boldly come before him not as our judge and condemner but as our father as his child. Throughout history we have seen demonstrations of God's righteous judgment demonstrated by fire. I think most of us are aware of the lake of fire. The lake of fire, also known as hell, created not for us, but for the devil and his angels, but all those who know not Christ, who have not been redeemed, will one day find themselves cast into the lake of fire. It's described as a place of darkness, a place of gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal torment and judgment. And it's all because of sin, our own sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and every one of us deserve to be consumed in fire and judgment. But why can we this day sit here together, stand here together, and lift our voices in praise and worship of our God and have no fear of his consuming fire? How is it that we can come boldly into his presence? It is because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ the one who came to seek and to save those who are lost, the one who came, lived a perfect and sinless life, and then was made sin for us as he offered himself as a sacrifice upon the cross. This morning in Bible Hour, we observed a vivid historical account documenting one time in the history of Israel where the fire of God came forth, came down from heaven in judgment. 
It was in the days of King Ahaziah, King Ahab's son. King Ahaziah was a wicked king. One day he fell through the lattice of his upper chamber and hurt himself terribly. He was dead, dreadfully sick. Instead of seeking the Lord Jehovah, instead he sought after Beelzebub, whom they called the Lord of life and the Jews, and even God himself inspired and the inspired record used the phrase Lord of flies in mockery of it. Instead of seeking the Lord, he sought after the false God, they called the God of life, as a fortune of how he would fare. As the messengers were on their way to Ekron, 40 miles away, God had Elijah intervene with a message saying, go back to your king, tell him he will not recover and he will die in that bed. Those messengers came back and you would think that Ahaziah would humble himself and would seek the Lord, but instead he orders a captain of 50 soldiers to go and to arrest Elijah. They come to Elijah, they see him sitting upon a hill, they demand that he come down. They call him a man of God. He responds to them by saying that if I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you. And as soon as the words came out of his mouth, that just so happened. God rained fire down and consumed them. You would think that as news of this got back to King Ahaziah, he would repent, but no. He sends another captain of 50, and the same thing happens. News comes back to Ahaziah. Ahaziah still does not repent, still hardens himself. He sends another captain with 50 soldiers to arrest Elijah. This captain <laughs> took note of the previous two captains and humbled himself and fell down upon his knees before Elijah and sought mercy. And then did bring Elijah before the king when Elijah delivered the message of God. Why, he asked, do you seek after a false god, the god of Ekron? Is there not the Lord God in Israel? This morning we learned about the importance of prayer and about the importance of seeking God and of how, I, of how Elijah is an example of a man who did just that. Deaziah is a man who in spite of being warned repeatedly, refused to, brought about judgment upon his armies. But in that, we see a glimpse of this righteous judgment of God brought forth upon these soldiers. Fire rained from heaven and consumed them. A terrifying record we read about there in 2 Kings chapter 1. But it's not the only occasion. In fact, if we go to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 11, we find a prophecy of two witnesses who will come in the future, in the time of the tribulation. Two witnesses will come. And it tells us in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 3, that Jesus will give them power unto these two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth, a reference to prophecies in Zechariah. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. 
These two witnesses are not identified, but because of these descriptions we read here, we have come to the conclusion that at least one of them we can for certainty say is Elijah, who, I'm going to tell you ahead of the story, is in history was caught up to heaven in a whirlwind of a fiery chariot and was prophesied at the end of Malachi that he would come back. And even Jesus spoke of him coming back. And so we conclude that one of them, with this reference as a hint, is that one of them, very, very likely, is Elijah. And just as in First King, or Second Kings chapter 1, he spoke the word and fire came down from heaven, so will be the case of demonstrated judgment in the time of the tribulation. And whether it's Elijah or not, these witnesses will have similar power that will be given to them. Verse 5 again, that if any will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must be killed in like manner. These have power to shut heaven, another a reference to Elijah, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood. Many suspect that Moses is the other of these two, to smite the earth with all plagues, as Moses did in Egypt as oft as they will. These two witnesses will be there to bring forth and will lead actually 144,000 virgin Israelites in bringing actually the gospel of the kingdom throughout all the earth during the days of the tribulation where there will not be a single tribe or language where the gospel of the kingdom will not be heard. It will be an incredible um, revival actually in the days of the tribulation, but it will be a horrific time and yet we also, as because of judgment, and here we see agents, you might say, these two witnesses of this judgment, witnesses of this judgment. God, in his righteousness, as the judge of all the earth, does right. And many times, in the face of wickedness and evil and sin, breaks forth as consuming fire. Seen documented in the days of King Ahaziah and prophesied to be yet future in the days of the tribulation. But that's not the only times. Let's go back to the earliest recorded history that we have. Um, we, we have those the garden of eden don't we we have the the adam and eve cast forth because of their sin and what is it that guards the way to the tree of life to angels to cherubim with flaming swords of fire in my survey of studying the scriptures and considering the different events in history and in prophecy of consuming fire, I came to the book of Job and I read about fire falling from heaven. Now, is that an illustration of God as consuming fire? Yes or no? Kind of a trick question, isn't it? You see, in the book of Job, Job was a man who, who lived and was most likely a contemporary of Abraham. And there was a time when fire fell from heaven and consumed many of his possessions and brought death and havoc in his life. But you know, in that particular case, it was not the judgment of God falling. 
It was the adversary, Satan, bringing destruction of life in defiance of God's righteousness, but with his permission. So we have fire falling from heaven, but it's not always from God. It's fascinating that how the father of lies, the devil, is a roaring lion, and he is so crafty. He's so subtle in his ways of how he seeks to mimic and imitate things that God has done. And that's one reason why it's very logical that some of Job's friends jump to the conclusion this is the judgment of God, because, I mean, you know, that's what God does. But we know from history that it wasn't. And so we have to be careful in certain times. And I use this as just a little bit of a rabbit trail. Can I go on? Sometimes people look at calamity or troubles in the world and they say, aha, it's because God's judging you or God's judging America or this or that. Let's be careful. God does do judgment, bring judgment in many and many manifold different ways. But we need to be careful that unless God has explicitly described it as judgment, jumping to the, the dogmatic conclusion that it's judgment, Sometimes it may very well be to demonstrate God's glory. That was the case in Job's life. He allowed Satan to bring this destruction calamity so that he could demonstrate himself strong and glorious and the creator of all things. And the end of the book was much of the purpose of it. But coming back to God himself, in Hebrews chapter 12, the chapter ends declaring that our God is a consuming fire. That didn't change just because Jesus came, died on the cross, and rose from the dead. If we read the whole context, and later we will, in Hebrews chapter 12, we'll find that this concept is based in the Old Testament, beginning at Mount Sinai. In um, Exodus chapter 19, the nation of Israel is there at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb there in the wilderness. And God descends down upon that mountain as a furnace of fire and thunderings and lightnings and the sound of a trumpet and a voice waxing louder and louder and louder. It tells us in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 17 that the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. That's what they saw. Deuteronomy, it's recorded, for the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. He showed his glory and his majesty through being and exhibiting himself in devouring fire consuming fire. He even demonstrated himself in that way in the fiery bush to Moses when he first met him. But that's not the only time this happens. There at Mount Sinai, God gave instructions, special specific instructions as how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle was constructed and built. The priesthood was ordained. But two of Aaron's sons, Aaron the high priest, his sons too, Nadab and Abihu, It's recorded in Leviticus chapter 10 that Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. They come before God with strange fire. 
worshiping him in a way that he had not prescribed. In rebellion and in blatant disobedience and wise according to their own eyes and their own way. And do you know what happened? These two sons of the high priest, priests themselves, it tells us in Leviticus 10.2 that there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them. And they died before the Lord. That wasn't the only occasion this happened, especially in dealing with the priesthood and how God was to be worshipped and in following what God said to be done. For in Numbers chapter 16, we find a man named Korah, who was a Levite of the same tribe as, of, as Moses and Aaron, but was not of the of the. the um, he was of the tribe of Levi, Levi, but he was not of the particular um, sec- family of the priesthood. And they became envious of Aaron and his position he held. And, and Korah poisoned and influenced 250 others and many others, particularly 250 others, in a rebellion against Moses. God gave them opportunity to repent. God gave them an entire day to repent and to believe what he had said and to trust him and to do what he had said. But on the next day, after they had been given warning, they come up in rebellion. Moses calls out for the people to separate from them. Some do. Many do not. And do you remember what happened? It's recorded for us in Numbers chapter 16 that the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up in their houses and all the men that appertained to Korah and all their goods. Then in verse 35, it says that there came out fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. Judgment flows forth. They took those brazen incense censers and actually melted them down and beat them into plates of bronze that they then put before the altar, the altar of sacrifice at the entrance in to the tabernacle. And they did this as a reminder to anyone who dared to approach the presence of God, be careful how you approach God as sinful man. You see this, these bronze plates that were there that were the incense, that were the censers of, of Korah and his 250 false priests, whom God consumed with fire. And it was put there as a warning beware how you approach God, for he is a consuming fire. It tells us in Psalm 21. Thine hand shall find out all thine enemies. Thy right hand shall find out those that hate thee. Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Our God is a consuming Mount Sinai, Nadab and Abihu, Korah and his 250 princes, 
King Ahaziah's 102 soldiers. Examples of fire breaking forth. As I think of this, I think of some others who endured fire. You know any? Nebuchadnezzar thought himself a god, didn't he? He set up a golden image, and he decreed that all, with the sound of his music, fall down and worship his golden idol. And when the music played, everyone fell down and worshiped this golden idol. Except three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were their pagan Babylonian names. Their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Nebuchadnezzar was furious. He thinking himself a god. You know what he's going to do? He's going to be a consuming fire. He has a fiery furnace. He heats that furnace ten times its normal heat. He gives them yet another opportunity. When you hear the music, fall down and worship my golden idol. The music begins to play and everyone falls down and worships that golden idol except for Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. They stand strong knowing that God has said, fear me because I am a consuming fire. Fear not those who have, the, who have the power, and they didn't have this scripture, by the way, but they knew it in principle and believed it. Fear not those who have the power to destroy the body, but fear the Lord who has the power to destroy both the body and the soul in the lake of fire. They feared God, not Nebuchadnezzar. And so when they were given that second chance, still, they stood strong and they refused to worship that golden idol. And Nebuchadnezzar thought to mimic the one true God in being a consuming fire as he took those three men, those children of Israel, and he cast them into the furnace of fire. You know the history. The soldiers who threw them into that fire, who didn't even get in it, but came close to it because of how hot it was, fell dead. Meanwhile, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood in that fire. And you know the only thing that burned? The ropes that they were bound with. Nebuchadnezzar's fire had no power over them. It was not a consuming fire. All it could consume were the bonds that set them free. And not only that, but they stood there with one whom Nebuchadnezzar described as the appearance of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, joined them there in that fiery furnace. The consuming fire, by the way, joined them in there, and they weren't harmed by it. No, no. Instead, the flames of Nebuchadnezzar set them free as they were in the very presence of the true consuming do you see the contrast? The contrast. Satan tries so often to mimic and to, and to mock and to deceive, but it's insignificant. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. You see, we read 
throughout history, times when God in his righteousness broke forth as a consuming fire in judgment. There was another prophecy in Deuteronomy 9 where God told his people through Moses there, just before they entered the promised land, he said, Understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth before thee. As a consuming fire he shall destroy them. Specifically in context, the enemies or the wicked people, the Anakims, or the children of Anak in the land. And he shall bring them down before thy face, and thou shalt drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord hath said unto thee. He said he would be as a consuming fire. Psalm 97.3 says that a fire goeth before him, that is the Lord who reigneth, and burneth up his enemies round about. And so now we turn to Luke chapter 9 and we find the eternal son of God, that one who was in the fiery furnace with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, now in flesh. Now one of us. It's near the end of his ministry. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. His face is set to Jerusalem. He is determined to go to Jerusalem, for he knows that he must go to Jerusalem and die and give his life as a sacrifice, as a salvation of all mankind. On his way, he sends messengers ahead to a town in Samaria prepare for them a place for them to stay the night. And it tells us in Luke 9, 52, that he sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. This city, this town, Refused to welcome Jesus. Absolutely refused. And it's given the reason here is, is because um, <laughs> they, they didn't like the fact that he was going to Jerusalem. Just if you didn't know, the Samaritans get, didn't get along with the Jews. And there's too much history there to go into all the significance behind Samaritans and Jews and what was taking place here. But needless to say, these were part Jews who resented and despised um, the Jews of Jerusalem particularly, and they had set up their own false religion um, and rejected um, the worship of Jehovah in Jerusalem, which Jesus verified as legitimate at that time, even to Samaritan peoples. But they were offended. What? We're not going to have anything to do with this Jesus, you know, apparently because they didn't think that he was treating them with what dignity or honor or respect or I don't know what they thought they were worthy of. And so the issue is, they're on this traveling, on their way south. This whole town says, you can't come in here. You, you can't stay here. They refuse to receive him. How would you feel? How, how would you feel if you're traveling along and the whole town says, sorry, you can't come here to spend the night? How would you feel if you were one of Jesus' disciples and you knew that Jesus was the eternal son of God and that Jesus created all the people in that town? And you knew that Jesus was the consuming fire. Well, James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, they remembered their Bible hour lesson, Second Kings chapter 1, like some of you did. You remember your Bible hour from Second Kings chapter 1? 
When those people refuse to accept the word of the Lord and to accept the authority of Elijah the prophet, what did Elijah do? He spoke the word and fire fell from heaven and consumed them. And these disciples are remembering that. And they're thinking, these people, they're just like those people in the past. Some people actually suspect, and it would make sense in the lay of the land, that this particular town was very close to the very spot where Elijah called down the fire from heaven. So you can imagine here, they're walking alongside and they're seeing the hill, or maybe they're even coming down from the hill, or maybe they've come up to the top of that hill. Pure speculation here. It fits within the geography, but we don't know this. This is imagination. They come... They see this village that has refused to let them in. Imagine. I mean, we, we, we read about these events and we have no connection to the land. There are places you could, if you lived in Israel though, you can go and you can say, hey, that's Mount Carmel. I mean, you could stand on Mount Carmel and you could just stand there on the edge and you could point out right from that hill major biblical events that took place just from that one vantage point. And that kind of thing happened. And it was used as a teaching aid of the people, children of Israel. And so it's possible, it's very likely, that they could at least see the hill from which Elijah was perched when this took place. And so James and John get the creative idea. Let's be like Elijah. Yeah. These people refuse to accept their Messiah. They refuse to accept the creator of all the earth. They refuse to accept the consuming fire, the very angel of the Lord of the Old Testament. And so they said, verse 54, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? Now, I love so much of the history of the Old Testament. I probably would have been there with James and John. I would have been like, yeah, that's a great idea. They even cite Elijah. But Jesus turned and he rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man himself is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. He is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. He's still the consuming fire. He still is a consuming fire. But that's not his purpose for being here. His first coming was not to bring death and judgment. His first coming was to be the Savior, the one who would take that offense, those sins, the sins of all the nation of Israel in that time and in history. In fact, the sins of all the world, including you and me, upon himself. You see, 
all of the consuming fire that we've seen demonstrated in God's righteous judgment throughout history culminated figuratively upon Jesus when he bore our sins on the cross and his father forsook him. That's what brought about our salvation. And just as a note, that's what made possible our ability, as that song said earlier, to come boldly before his presence, having nothing to fear. Wow. This morning, have you accepted what Jesus has done for you and the free gift he offers to you, everlasting life? What must you do to be saved? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He did all of the work so that we can come before him. We can come into his presence boldly as one of his children, not as one condemned. If you do not believe upon him and receive his gift of salvation, when you do come before him one day, you will come before him as a condemned, guilty sinner before the eternal judge of all the earth who is a consuming fire and will decree that you be cast into the lake of fire. If you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and received his gift of forgiveness and everlasting life, today's the day. Because the next time Jesus comes back, he will come not as Savior. He will come as judge. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to the believers in Thessalonica. And he's actually writing to them to comfort them. They're having a hard time. They are being persecuted. And he encourages them and all of this process. For he says that in verse 4, so that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is, a which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. He's acknowledging a truth here. By the way, be, beware lest people try to say, that all trouble and problems come because of someone's sin. This is a church that is being commended 
for their righteousness. That's, I mean, it's because your faith groweth exceedingly and the charity of every one of you to all toward each other aboundeth is what's described in verse 3. But yet they're going through such persecutions and tribulations. If you look back to another letter written in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 28, it's advised that we be nothing terrified by our adversaries, which is in them a token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. He's telling the people, comparing these two truths and harmonizing them, that as you're enduring this, this is a token of the righteous judgment. What you're experiencing here is just a little token of what real judgment looks like. But you have nothing really to worry about here because you've been counted worthy of the kingdom of God. So as you suffer in this time, keep your eyes focused on what's coming because this is just a fading moment. And it's, but yet a token of the righteous judgment of God because what you're suffering and enduring, those who do not accept Christ will suffer much worse and comparable to what you are. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you and to you who are troubled, rest with us. Consider this. You're going through persecution. You're going through trouble as these people are torturing you, abusing you. And you've done nothing wrong. Consider the righteousness of God. Consider what is yet future. Verse 7. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. And so he, he, he continues. So as you face persecution or trouble, and really as Americans, we don't understand that, but the day may come. We do evaluate, examine ourselves. Is it personal sin? Yes, indeed. It's legitimate to concern and evaluate and seek the Lord to show us if there be any wicked way in us that we need to take care of. We need to go forth in rest and peace, knowing that this persecution is but a little token, a little peace of what judgment will come upon these very oppressors, which ought to then give cause and warning to any who dare to oppress and to any who have not obeyed the gospel. This morning, have you obeyed the gospel? The gospel is this, Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and whosoever who believes in their heart and calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved believe on him believe on him that's what this is all about that you see in this Jesus is coming and to all those who do not believe, he is a consuming fire. Those guys we read about this morning who were just consumed in the fire. That's what he is to those who have refused to obey the gospel. 
But did you see what he is to those who have obeyed the gospel? He's glory. He's glory in them. That's an amazing truth. That's an amazing truth. And in fact, it's something that's true right now because he abides in us and he dwells in us. Salvation will come. This prophecy here is specifically dealing with the revelation, which is at the end of the tribulation. There's another reference, and we're totally out of time here today, but I'll give it to you to jot down because it's not just prophesied here in the New Testament, but if you were to go back to Isaiah chapter 33, the question is asked, who shall dwell with the devouring fire and who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? That's who God is. God is a consuming fire. Who can dwell with that? The answer goes on, and it's very similar of walking in righteousness. And don't, don't just read the few verses, read the whole chapter, because a key piece is at the very end of it, which speaks of the forgiveness of sins. Those who have their sins forgiven are the ones who can dwell within the consuming fire and in his presence. And it's not a consuming fire. It's rather like the fire in Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. It's a fire of glory. And so when we look at these and we read these accounts of this consuming fire, it should give us cause to take note. Again, we don't have time to go through all of the details, but Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, the end of the chapter, deals with contrasting the old covenant and the new covenant, dealing with the glory of the fire of God being a consuming fire in the Old Testament and contrasting how it is for us when we approach God. It doesn't mean, though, that we just flippantly approach God and casually, and, oh, you know, I'm, I'm one God's children, so I can live however I want. No, 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 no. In fact, the whole point of it is that because we have all of these privileges, we can't forget that he's still a consuming fire. And that should be a motivation to us as believers. So if this morning you haven't believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe on him because it's the only way for you to endure the consuming fire of his presence. If you have believed on him, then his fire is glory to you. And it should motivate you to be a faithful witness, to be one who is faithful in sharing the gospel so that others hear the gospel and can obey it, which is to believe. And it also should motivate us to live lives for God's glory. In fact, all through described here in Hebrews chapter 12, speaks of the fact that the day is coming when this heaven and earth will melt with a fervent heat. All the sin that has cursed this world will be purged by fire. And then God will create a new heaven and a new earth. How will you come through that fire? And if this morning you know that you have Christ in you, the hope of glory, knowing that that consuming fire will simply be manifested in you as glory, then how ought you to live? Considering the fact that you know, you know for sure that this consuming fire will be glory in you, how ought you to live? Hebrews 12 gives the answer. He says this, Wherefore, we, Verse 28, Hebrews 12, 28. Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace. 
whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. And then he goes on with very practical admonitions. Let brotherly love continue. Be forgetful not to entertain strangers. Remember them that are in bonds. Marriage is honorable and all, but the bed defiled, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness. He deals, we can serve God now going forth, knowing that we have nothing to fear in the sense that we often think of fear, because we have hope. Thereby, this fear is a reverence and an awe and a holy life lived by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, going forth and resulting in a life to God's glory. So this morning, we acknowledge God. You are a consuming fire. Do you acknowledge that today? That he is a consuming fire. And this morning, have you obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel so that when you stand in his presence, it will not be consuming you in judgment and destruction, but will be glory in you? Obey the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And for all of us who have believed, let us, knowing we have received the kingdom which cannot be moved, no matter what things are shaken and burned and consumed by fire, let us have grace whereby we may serve God, worship God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. It's a godly fear. It's a fear that it's fascinating in, in Hebrews or in Isaiah it speaks of the fear of the Lord as being a treasure. Uh, in Proverbs, it's the fear of the Lord as a strong confidence. Uh, the fear of the Lord to the believer, to the one who is trusting in God, the one who has a right relationship with God, is a magnificent thing. But to the one who is an enemy of God, it is a dreadful thing. Be his child. You can then enter boldly before him.